0: Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosly.
1: There are three basic reasons why I'm running for president of the United States. When a government works great
0: for those at the top and for no one else. The first
1: is to restore the soul of the nation. That is corruption, pure and simple, and we have to call it out. And the second is to rebuild the backbone of this nation. If We stand together by the millions. This country cannot afford four more years of Donald Trump. We will not recognize it. And the third is to unify this nation. There is nothing that we in this great country cannot accomplish. They tried to take away your dignity and your destiny, but we will never let them do that, will we? Americans
0: elect a president every four years. Yet given how long the campaign season runs, you would think it was every two. Indeed, the men and women vying for the Democratic Party's nomination to face Donald Trump in November kicked off their efforts at the start of 2019. Why the early start? The answer in part is Iowa. 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 The Iowa caucuses officially kick off the U.S. presidential race. They take place in late January or early February, 10 months ahead of Election Day.
1: Why Iowa in the first place? It's 90% white.
0: I think it's it's widely recognized as an undemocratic, discriminatory process that most of us want to fix.
1: You know, when we talk about the problems in the near term, of course, is this election. But really, the long-term problem is can the Iowa caucuses
0: survive? That wasn't always the case. In fact, for much of the country's history, the people did not select presidential candidates. Members of Congress and party insiders did. In an effort to democratize the process, America's two major political parties introduced state primary elections and caucuses, held in the run-up to the National Party conventions in the summer. In 1972, Iowa moved its caucuses to January, setting in motion the marathon election cycle Americans endure today. How has the long election cycle influenced U.S. presidential races past and present? Ted Widmere joins me to answer that and other questions. Ted, how are you. you? It's so good to see you. Yeah, how are you, you. doing? Good. He is a former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton. Currently, he is a lecturer at the City University of New York and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International okay. Affairs.
1: I'm traveling after this. So. Oh, where are you going?
0: His book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, will be published in April. Ted, I want to start with a bit of history. How were U.S. presidential nominees chosen in the past, and how did we get to the primary and caucus system we have today?
1: It was a really important topic at the very beginning of the experiment. And In, in fact, country starts with the Declaration of Independence, 1776. There's a president of Congress, John Hancock, but not, not of the United States, and in the next 11 years, the period of the Articles of Confederation, the government was weak, and so the men we call the founders convened in Philadelphia and wrote new rules, the Constitution, and inside of the Constitution is, is the uh, definition of the presidency, and they thought a lot about how to elect this very important person. Some of them thought Congress should just choose, but then they thought that would give Congress even more power than it already had. It had a fair amount, and they wanted the executive branch to have its own power. So this system of the electoral college was devised. There have been a lot of flaws detected in the system ever since then, as you might expect. And then uh, over the 19th century, a a lot of new innovations came in. And so parties formed, and then the party started forming nominating conventions, and they generally chose the candidates throughout the 19th century. They were generally controlled by party bosses, picking their candidates behind closed doors. But at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of reformers thought that that system was flawed. Um, Too many insiders were being chosen. And so primaries began, um, mainly in Western states. When
0: did the primaries begin?
1: In the first two decades of the 20th century. Beginning in 1916 and 1920, they, they begin to be more part of the landscape But they they weren't that important for a long time. And it wasn't really until 1952 that a primary had a big impact, and it was actually on the Republican side, not the Democratic side, when Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was something of an outsider, he wasn't a known political commodity. He was a very famous American, distinguished soldier, of course, but um, he was running against... Party insiders, uh, a guy named Robert Taft, who was a senator from Ohio. And in the New Hampshire primary, Eisenhower beat Taft. And so that was a, an innovation that showed outsiders could get into the system and be, prove their popularity. It changed a lot in the late 60s and early 70s when Democrats rewrote their system to give less power to the bosses.
0: So you just mentioned that the party system changed in the 70s, and that was with Iowa. Why did Iowa become the first state in the party nomination process?
1: Iowa got lucky, basically. And there's still some tension between Iowa and New Hampshire over who is the first. One is a caucus. That's what Iowa is. And the other is a primary. Primary is a little bit more legitimate voting process for a single candidate. But most people can barely tell the difference and the way the media covers it, Iowa is extremely important, and it's really the first time we, we feel the wind, the winds that are so important in the course of a presidential campaign. So what happened is there was a disastrous nominating convention for the Democrats.
0: Chicago, August 1968, the country deeply divided. The war in Vietnam claiming hundreds of American lives every week. The convention
1: was a disaster waiting to happen. It was a tough year all around. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Senator
0: Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6,
1: 1968. Eugene McCarthy, senator from Minnesota, had run very well. He had entered primaries. And he had done quite well in, in, in all of them. But in New Hampshire especially, he came in second, but it was close enough to Lyndon Johnson that Lyndon Johnson, the president, said he wasn't even going to run. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. So it's a wide-open year. On top of that, feelings are raw because of the Vietnam War and a feeling that Washington just doesn't get it. Both sides, Democrats and Republicans, are out of touch with young generations. So young people swarmed Chicago, where the nominating convention was.
0: Hundreds of marchers and dozens of policemen were injured.
1: That was a city controlled by a very tough mayor who was an old-fashioned political boss named Richard Daley. And he got his... Police force out uh, in great numbers. These people are revolutionaries bent on the destruction of the government of the United States of America. They're a pitiful handful. And there were a lot of violent scenes that were televised. It was a disaster for the Democratic Party, which, by all accounts, should have won. They had a majority of voters back in the late '60s, but they look so bad on TV with these with the, the, the police of the of the boss hitting young people's heads with nightsticks. And then the result of that convention was an insider. I choose not simply to run for president. I seek to lead a
0: great nation.
1: The vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who hadn't even entered a primary, was given the nomination over a senator, Eugene McCarthy, who tried pretty hard and entered primary. So... Everyone thought this isn't working, and a new commission was created, and they rewrote the rules, and as a result of their rules, they they gave much less power to the party bosses. They tried to open it up to new kinds of electors, just better conventions, conventions with more women, with more young people, with more African Americans, more Latinos. And one of the innovations that came out of that commission that rewrote the rules was that the Iowa caucus would be uh, allowed to play a, a large determining role. And who that was seen as a democratic innovation. And democracy with a small d was, was very much in vogue in the wake of the 1968 convention.
0: But Iowa has not always determined the eventual nominee. And so I'm thinking back to 1988 when um, the Republican candidate Bob Dole, who was a senator at the time from Kansas, won the Iowa caucus that year but the nominee was eventually George H W Bush who finished third in Iowa
1: right no it's absolutely true not every no- victor in Iowa has won the nomination and the same is true for New Hampshire they, they're they're flawed they're flawed in many ways including a lot of people are not happy with either Iowa or New Hampshire being so important because they're extremely caucasian states. Uh, Iowa's 90%, I think, white, and New Hampshire, I think, is 92% white. So they don't really represent America. And there aren't huge cities in either state. Why did these two relatively small states become so important in the presidential nominating process? And we still are trying to answer that question, and we still occasionally try to fix it, but they're both Pretty skilled at lobbying for themselves, and so I, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. But actually, we we want it to be true that they don't always work out. That it, I think it's a better system if Iowa and New Hampshire get it wrong sometimes, because uh, we we will see different kinds of presidential campaigns. Right now, there is one with Mike Bloomberg, who's largely ignoring Iowa entirely. We want the system to reflect the changing desires and needs of the American people. So I think um, the occasional failure of Iowa to pick the winner is probably a good thing.
0: You mentioned that Iowa is largely white. It's largely a rural electorate. Why then do candidates take Iowa's caucuses so seriously?
1: I mean, a lot of the answer is just the media. The media is there in such huge numbers that it is worth it to the candidates to get into Iowa and spend a lot of time there and to be seen, and so that's the operative word, to be seen out there shaking a lot of hands, going to picnics, talking to voters in small events, and they mostly are small events. And The, the nature of a caucus, it's a pretty intimate gathering where you talk to voters. It's not like huge rally speeches, it's more events in backyards and gymnasiums and uh, libraries. And, you know, there's a bit of a Norman Rockwell feeling to the Iowa caucus that this is how America works. Um, I I think it's sometimes a, a bit inaccurate. It's a kind of, I mean, like Norman Rockwell, it's sort of a 1940s image of how America works, and that's a long time ago. But the press eats it up, and everybody reads their coverage. And if you come out of Iowa with a win, it's, it's a huge advantage, including for New Hampshire. And it, it has been true more often than not. I mean, yes, there are exceptions, but I think 55 percent of the Democratic nominees, I mean, I mean, victors in Iowa, have gone on to win the nomination. So it's a pretty powerful boost to whoever's running for president.
0: We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. For less than $2 a week, not only can you help us continue to interview experts week after week, but also join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Visit project-syndicate.org to learn more. So I want to turn to partisanship. It is definitely a factor in the 2020 election. Would a shorter election campaign help mitigate this?
1: It's a tough question. And we just saw the British conduct an election in November and December with far more efficiency, far less time, far less money spent than we we spend in our elections. It's not just that we take forever. We spend ungodly amounts of money. Uh, I think the founders would be horrified by the amounts of money coursing through our political bloodstream. And I think the answer is probably yes, that we we almost couldn't do it worse than we're we're doing it. But there is the argument out there still that some long-shot candidate might take a while to establish himself or herself and time help such a person, because a short frame will almost invariably help someone who's really connected to the establishment, who who really knows the head of the RNC or the DNC and has a huge amount of money. Arguably, that that worked for Barack Obama in 2008. He needed some time. I mean, he, he needed really from 2004, when he gave his famous speech at the uh, Boston Convention, to 2008 to fan out around the country, meet a lot of people, raise money. He was coming into it with a relatively low level of financial uh, strength and connectivity to the deep inside politicians. And I think he needed that four-year period to establish himself before 2008. So the system does work sometimes the slow way, but it is this death by a thousand cuts and you turn on the TV and you don't even know who to watch or it, it seems often like especially on the Democratic side. There are just so many people running. And in that crowded stage when you're watching a debate in the early debates, it's very hard to to hear anyone. Um, So it's a pretty flawed process.
0: You mentioned the establishment and the fact that these longer cycles, with Iowa being early in the year and New Hampshire coming right after it, allows a lesser-known candidate to get name recognition and connect with voters. But what's the flip side of that? Because what we see also then is that the establishment really tries to come in to reign kind of the unknown candidate, the person who is upsurging. So I'm thinking about 2016, Donald Trump seemed unstoppable despite the desperate efforts of the Republican Party establishment And if we were looking today, something similar seems to be happening to the Democrats, with the party's establishment attacking Bernie Sanders, who's the outsider. Should that be stopped? Can it be?
1: You know, sometimes the outsider has been a better candidate. I think Dwight Eisenhower became a better president than Robert Taft would have been in 1952 by by a lot but i think sometimes the establishment candidate is is pretty good also and one value i think in new hampshire it never likes the established party candidate on on either side so when bill clinton was running in 92 he was doing very well the real thing that matters is not our yesterdays but our tomorrows he lost new hampshire to paul songus who most people don't remember anymore he was a senator from massachusetts It was to Clinton's everlasting credit that he was such a good politician that he had a victory conference, and that he came in second. I think we know enough to say with some certainty that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. And called himself the comeback kid, and that actually worked. The media picked it up, and everyone loved it. Uh, In 2000, George W. Bush was doing very well. And he lost New Hampshire, probably because he was doing so well, because New Hampshire voters always like underdogs, and they, they like authentic people who speak to them from the heart. So they, they voted for McCain that year. Um, in 08, Obama had won Iowa, and Hillary had a huge comeback.
0: I want especially to thank New Hampshire. Over the last week, I listened to you, and in the process... I found my own voice.
1: I don't know who was the establishment candidate. You can't really say, because both Obama having won Iowa and Hillary as the former first lady and a powerful New York senator, they were both kind of establishment. But in the time of the New Hampshire primary in 2008, Hillary felt like more of an underdog. So that's who won. But then Hillary... In 2016, when she's the overwhelming establishment candidate, she lost. We are projecting that when all the votes are counted, Bernie Sanders will, as expected, win the New Hampshire primary over Hillary Clinton. So New Hampshire voters love to vote for the underdog, and I think that's usually pretty healthy. We we don't want a steamroller where the candidate with the most money and the most media contacts is automatically the nominee.
0: Ted, at the beginning of the episode, we spoke about how today's presidential nomination process is the culmination of years' worth of adjustments and amendments aimed to increase transparency. Have the benefits exceeded the costs, and should the process be reformed?
1: I think there's a plausible argument that the party bosses did as good a job, sometimes a better job, than our more democratic system since 1972. The... Party bosses gave us Harry Truman, who's a pretty good president. Um, Party bosses largely gave us John F. Kennedy, although he ran in primaries, but he was certainly uh, the favorite of the bosses as as well. The bosses gave us Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He, He did pretty well. So transparency has not always resulted in better nominees, and on the Democratic side especially. Democrats have lost a lot of presidential elections since these reforms came through. I, I completely understand why they needed to go through, but I think it's it's a fair question that people who can pick up a sudden surge of popularity uh, in, a, in a primary might not do that well in a general election in, in the fall. So that's something that's on the minds of a lot of Democrats, and I am a Democrat right now, which is... Does the progressive left of the Democratic Party, which includes Bernie, who's doing very well at the moment, and Elizabeth uh, Warren, does it have as good a chance of winning in the fall as someone who's more centrist, like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or Mike Bloomberg or Amy Klobuchar? And I think, well, it's a very hard question to answer because if Bernie Sanders wins the nomination, he will get a boost in energy and money, and he might prevail in November But most statistical indices suggest that he will not be as strong a candidate as as a centrist in in November in the general election. Primaries tend to um, misrepresent how a party candidate will do in the general election in the fall before the entire American people. And party bosses understood that. Party bosses would generally pick centrists who would have the best chance of winning in November. Primaries with open rules tend to favor people with um, positions more to the left if you're a Democrat and more to the right if you're a Republican.
0: Tonight, President Trump will address Congress for the annual State of the Union. As a former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, can you tell us what to expect?
1: I can tell you what we always try to do in the Clinton administration, then I can offer a few thoughts about Donald Trump's versions of State of the Union. Um, we saw it as the most important speech of the year, and a chance to put forth ideas for for wise legislation. And certainly, they were coming from a Democratic president, and they represented his Democratic politics. But it was an attempt to speak before Congress and the nation and say, "Here are the things that are important uh, for the economy." for education for healthcare for foreign policy for everything that matters to to Americans and and so it was a very important moment of political theater with the whole country paying attention and we would work for months literally and a, a few things have happened since then one is that people pay less attention to them there are a few reasons there are a lot more tv stations you got to entertain people and a, A 70-minute speech by a president isn't always the most entertaining theater. I used that word before, and it it can be boring. I think a lot of Americans are turned off by the partisan nature of Washington. Both Republicans and Democrats are are turned off by Washington. And Donald Trump has been a strange president when it comes to the State of the Union. He gives a really boring and low-energy State of the Union. Low energy is his own Insult for Jeb Trump, I mean, Jeb Bush, excuse me, a few few years ago. Um, I think he has a, a lot of trouble in a formal setting. He's a very effective speaker to his own rallies, to his base. And we Democrats and pundits should never minimize how effective a speaker he can be to his base. But when you put him in a formal room, his effectiveness goes down very quickly. Um, he can't get away with his sort of predictable al- uh, applause lines, many of which are not true. And he just seems stymied by the format. He does not I don't think he likes to read a speech. It's a very simple observation, but I don't think he likes to read a speech either on paper, which you, you see very rarely, Donald Trump reading a printed speech. And when you do see it, it's usually a pretty bad result. But even off the teleprompter, he's not comfortable with a teleprompter. He is amazingly comfortable in a freeform way just as an actor standing in front of a crowd of s- sympathetic people riffing. He's a great riffer, but he's a bad giver of a formal speech, and the State of the Union is a formal speech.
0: Ted, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope?
1: Young people. I'm a college professor. I'm now very old. I used to feel like I was young for a long time and I'm I'm not anymore. I have a son who's college age, who's great, and I'm around young people all the time and I'm, you know, I'm now about two political generations past them. They're really thinking hard about their futures. They're very advanced in thinking about certain issues and I would include climate especially on that. I think I find them almost always better informed and more passionate than their elders. And I find people my age and older remarkably poorly informed on climate issues, poorly informed and not passionate. Those two, I think, go together. And the young people are well-informed and passionate. Young people are often not as well-informed as they should be about the nuts and bolts of politics. And they get really frustrated when they're candidate of the month doesn't win, and they often lack long-term patience, and I think that would be good for them to work on, too, to work with older people or people who are a little different from them politically to build up movements that are truly national or have a chance of reaching moderates in the other party, because I think that's, that's how you win. And um, I'm old enough to remember when Democrats actually won, and, and that, that's important. So I love young people, but I, I, I also like pragmatism.
0: Ted, thank you.
1: Thanks, Elmira. Great to see you. we right on to my next stop. It stops all day long.
0: That okay, was Ted Widmere. He is a historian and writer who served as a speechwriter in the Clinton White House. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Hazard is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian, Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.